Welcome to the listener's commentary on Romans chapter 9. If you haven't listened to the introduction to 9, 10, 11, please go back and do that. It'll really set the stage and help us read this well, because Romans 9 picks up with a major shift in tone, and really, in some ways, it feels like topic from the end of chapter 8. And it can be really kind of confusing as to how does this then relate to what preceded and to what follows and where does this fit into the overall thought flow of the book of Romans. And so make sure you've listened to the introduction um, as you enter into this because it will give you at least a lay of the land. And as we said in the introduction, the major question of Romans chapter 9 is this, has God's word come up empty specifically in relationship to all his promises to Israel, everything he had said in the Old Testament prophets about Israel and what he was going to do for Israel, compared with now the fact that most Jews have rejected Jesus' Messiah in Paul's day, has God's word to them come up empty? Has his promises come up empty? That's the question that Paul is going to take up in force here in Romans chapter 9. And he's going to say, in short, no, God's word hasn't come up empty because God has always had to make choices about who he's going to use and how he's going to carry the promise forward. And it wasn't always going to come through all of the descendants of Abraham. And so God has always and only worked with a small part of the line of Abraham. And that's really at the heart of what he's going to say here in chapter 9, is that Romans 9 is really a laying out of the story of Israel for the purposes of the argument of Romans. And what he wants to help them, the original audience, see and us see is that God has actually kept his word to Israel. And what is happening in Paul's day with the majority of Jews rejecting the Messiah is in keeping with the story of Israel. So chapter 9 opens with Paul really pouring out his heart about how he feels about whom he calls his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Jews, and about how they were giving all these great advantages and all these opportunities, and yet here, here they are on the outside looking in, and it breaks Paul's heart. This is the way Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5 reads. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And so Paul opens this section, like I said, shift in tone, right? Chapter 8 ends in a grand celebratory fashion, and then boom, hard stop and hard shift to the beginning of chapter 9. But but that's just the nature of the way Paul has written the letter. And chapter 9 opens with Paul saying he has grief and sorrow in his heart. And he's, he's telling the truth. It's just the reality. The Holy Spirit and Paul's spirit together express this grief. Well, what is he grieved over? We'll continue reading in verse 3. And Paul says, For, he's explaining his grief, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. My kinsmen according to the flesh. That phrase is important because that tells us he's talking about his fellow Jews. So he's saying, I I could wish that I myself were separate from Christ for the sake of my, my fellow Jews. And then he lists off in verses 4 and following all these kind of advantages and privileges that the Jews had. In fact, in some ways, it almost picks up the list that Paul started clear back in Romans 3, verse 2, where he said, what advantage is the Jew? And he only gives one there, right? Like they were given the oracles of God. Well, here he gives a whole lot more. What are some of the advantages of the Jews? Well, who are Israelites? 
to whom belong the adoption as sons, right? They were God's children, right? The children of Israel and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises from whom are the patriarchs, the fathers, and from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. In other words, it's interesting because Paul says, I have grief for my fellow Jews. He doesn't ever really state here in verse, verses uh, 3 through 5 what the problem is for the Jews. We're left to infer that, and obviously we can, knowing what's going on in the world. But Paul does come back and state that in chapter 10 at the very beginning where he lets us know that they're outside. They're not saved. They've missed the, the, the culmination of their story, he tells us at the beginning of 10. And so we have to infer that here, that why is he grieved? Well, because they were given all these advantages and all these privileges as Jews, and yet they're now outside of the community of the saved, the community of God's people. And that breaks Paul's heart. Now, in verse 6, Paul shifts then to the point, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. This is the topic of chapter 9. Has God's word failed? Has God's promises to Israel failed? Has God's righteousness and everything he said he would do for Israel failed? Well, no, Paul says, it's not the case. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? Paul explains, because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And that really is the thesis statement for not only chapter 9, but all of 9, 10, and 11. What Paul is going to unpack in the following chapters is that statement. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What do you mean, Paul? And help me understand. If you're saying God's word to Israel hasn't failed, even though most of Israel missed the Messiah, help me understand what you mean. And Paul says, well, here's what I mean. They're not necessarily a true Jew just because they have Jewish blood flowing through their vein. That's what he means uh, by they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And Paul is going to unpack that. And what he's going to say in essence is there's more to being a Israelite than just being a descendant of Jacob. Bloodlines aren't the final line of demarcation. God's promise is, and God has always worked with only some of Abraham's descendants to carry forward that promise, that saving purpose in and through Israel. And so Paul immediately follows up that statement about who's all Israel in, in verse 7 by saying, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. So just because somebody's a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean they're all children. What does he mean by all children? Well, it becomes clear in what follows that he means the children of promise. So here's how verses 7 through 13 work. Verses 7 through 13 retell patriarchal history, the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis. They retell patriarchal history to demonstrate that from the get-go, God has been narrowing down which descendants of Abraham the line of promise will be fulfilled through. So in verse 7, it's Isaac is going to be the line, not Ishmael. And in verses 10 through 13, it's going to be Jacob, not Esau, that God has continually been narrowing down the lineage of promise as he's worked with Abraham and Abraham's family. Let's read and get the details. Verse 7 
says this, nor are they all children, that is children of promise, because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And notice he quotes there Genesis 21, 12, where God makes it really clear to Abraham, no, Ishmael is not the line of promise. Isaac is the line of promise. Ishmael was of the flesh. Isaac was of the promise. And so he really recalls the promise in Genesis 18 that, no, it's going to be through your own descendants, your own descendants. Keep reading in Romans here, and we'll see what he says about that. He says, that is, it's not the children of the flesh, i.e. Ishmael, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, that is, Isaac, who are regarded as descendants. In other words, it's Isaac is the lineage of promise. That's the one. And so it's Isaac, not Ishmael. We're narrowing down the, the lineage through whom the promise will be fulfilled. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. Genesis 18, verse 10. That is, uh, Paul is recalling that to say, look, God made this promise and it's going to happen through Sarah, right? And so he's recalling the promise that God made to to Abraham to, to make it very clear that Isaac is the one through whom the promise will be carried forward. Verse 10 through 13, we said the same was really true in regards to Isaac and Rebekah with their children, Jacob and Esau. So verses 10 through 13, the point is God was going to carry the promise forward through Jacob and not Esau. We're narrowing it down, narrowing it down. And so he says in verses 10 through 13, uh, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also. So we move forward in patriarchal history. Um, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for Though the twins were not yet born, hadn't done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, uh, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. We'll come back to that statement in just a second, but let's not lose the main point for the sake of some of these these details that are very important details. But the main point is this, that God had identified Jacob as the lineage of promise and not Esau. In fact, Paul says here, he he did that even while they were still in the womb, while they were unborn, right? Like God had identified Jacob as the line of promise. What Paul says here is, though the twins weren't yet born, they hadn't done anything good or bad. So it wasn't based on you know, their merit or anything else. It was just purely based on God's promise and God's purpose. And, and so God did it the uh, in an unusual way, not the usual human way, right? Not the normal way of the flesh, which was the older always gets to become the, 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 the line carrying it forward. He gets to be the primary inheritor. No, in this case, the younger is actually going to be that, and the older is going to serve the younger. Again, that's recalling the story in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, where uh, it's, it's, it's just the way it's going to work out is that Esau, the older, is actually going to be indebted to and serve uh, Jacob, the younger. And Paul wants to emphasize that point, that this is not the normal human way. This was a divinely planned and purposed thing that God was going to 
used Jacob to carry the line of promise forward, and he emphasizes it by quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, that is right out of the prophet Malachi. Here's the thing. Now, that's a very difficult text, and as we noted in the introduction, so much about this section is difficult, because we hear that we immediately think, wait a second, God hated Esau, this poor yet born child? Well, Whenever you see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, the first thing you should do is go back and read it in its Old Testament context. And when you read Malachi chapter 1 and you see this, uh, this phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, it's clearly they're dealing with nations, not the individuals. And the point there is that God has not dealt favorably with Edom or Esau. Instead, as a people, they are under God's wrath because of who they are as a people. And so we're talking peoples, not persons, when we talk about Jacob I loved and Esau I've chosen. Again, because we're talking about God carrying the line of promise forward. We're talking about God's saving purposes through Abraham's family, not just the individuals. And so uh, when he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, in its Old Testament context, it's talking about the nation of Israel and the nation of Esau or Edom. And thus Romans 9 says that the two peoples, that is the two nations that came forth from Isaac, aren't both the children of promise. They aren't both the people of God. Esau is turned out by God. Edom, as a nation, is outside of God's people. That's the point here in Romans chapter 9. In fact, interestingly enough, the phrase, the older will serve the younger, even read, read that in its Old Testament context, and we're, we're still talking about peoples, nations, not the individual. So when God makes this promise about Jacob, it's not about the individual person so much as it is the peoples, the nations that are going to spring forth from him. Let me read you Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. It says this, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older, older people will serve the younger. Right? And so we're, we're dealing with nations, with peoples, not individuals. And that's really, really important to make sure we hear. Because the point of uh, Romans chapter 9 is not individuals and how God works with every individuals and all of that. It's about Israel and the people of God and the nation of Israel because he's wrestling with his angst and his grief about the nation of Israel. And has God's word failed to them as a people? And the answer is no. That why isn't that? Well, because there's more to being a Jew than just having Jewish DNA or having Abraham's DNA, right? There's more to being part of the people of God, the people of promise, than just coming directly and physically from Abraham's family. That's the whole point. And so don't lose that, even in view of some of the challenging sentences and challenging phrases that show up here in Romans chapter 9. Then in verses 14 through 18, Paul carries the argument forward really to the time of the Exodus in chronology and in logic. What he's going to say is, wait a second, 
is this unjust? Is this unjust of God to have to narrow down the line of promises? Is it unjust of God to choose Isaac over Ishmael, to choose Jacob over Esau? And Paul's answer to that, in short, in verses 14 through 18 is, well, no, there's no injustice with God. There's only mercy here. Like, no one deserves this. No one earned this. This is purely an act of mercy on God's part. And so verses 14 through 18 emphasizes that this isn't unjust of God. This is actually a gift of mercy on God's part. Here's the way verses 14 through 18 work. Verse 14 raises the question about God's justice. Then in verses 15 and 16, you get an Old Testament quote and then an implication or a point from that quote. And then again, in verses 17 through 18, you get an Old Testament quote and then a point from that quote. So the question in verse 14 is, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? So that's the question. Is God unjust in narrowing down his lineage of promise like this and deciding who he's going to carry his saving purposes through? Is is, is, that, is there injustice here? And Paul's answer is, well, no, no way. May it never be. There's no injustice here. Why not? Well, because ultimately this is all about mercy. Verse 15, for uh, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's the Old Testament quote. And that quote is from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, Exodus 33, 19. And that really comes on the heels of the golden calf incident. God's wrath has burned against his people, Israel in total. And he's told Moses, I'm not going to go with you to the promised land. I'm done with you, right? That's really what's going on in this context here. Moses pleads with God to go with them, to go with Israel. Why? Well, because God's presence is the thing that distinguishes them from all the other nations on earth. And so God then reassures Moses, okay, fine, I will go with you. And it's in this context then that Moses asks God, to see his glory. Immediately after God says, okay, I will go with you. I will do the thing for which you have done because you found favor in my sight. I've known you by name, God says, so I will do this. I will go with you all the way into the promised land. And then Moses says, I I pray you, show me your glory. And God answers by saying, okay, I will make myself and all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. That's the bit that's quoted, right? Um, And so God is reassuring Moses that he's going to continue to go with the nation of Israel. They will continue to be his people, and he will continue to guide them because uh, Moses has found favor with him. And Moses is actually going to be reassured of that when God passes before him. And allows him to see him. And God is doing this simply as an act of mercy and grace, not because anybody has any claim on it. There's no entitlement. God doesn't owe this to Moses. God doesn't owe this to his people. They are a faithless people. And yet God is going to go with them because he's merciful and gracious and compassionate. And that's the point Paul draws out from the Old Testament quote in Romans 9.16. He says, So then... It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That ultimately, all of this depends 
not on our shortcomings, not on our failures, not on our ability. It ultimately depends on God's mercy and God's grace. That's what he did for Israel. And so there's no injustice with God. There's there's mercy here. This is the fact that God is actually using Israel and continuing with Israel is an act of mercy, not an act of injustice. Because if you go back to the preceding verses, neither Esau nor Jacob have a claim on God. They don't have any entitlement to them, right? Like neither Ishmael nor Isaac have a claim on God. They don't have any entitlement to him, right? Like God is just purely a merciful God. And he's doing this because he wants to rescue the world. And he's going to use these people for that purpose. And it's not because they have any entitlement or claim to it. It's only because of God's mercy. Now, verses 17 through 18, we get another Old Testament quote. And then we get a point that Paul is going to draw from that quote. The quote here is from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, and it's about Pharaoh. Um, and this quote, this section can easily be misunderstood, so we've got to think clearly about what he means by this. So let me read you in verse 17. Here's the quote. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and so this is a further explanation about mercy, right? Notice the four at the beginning of verse 17. So we're explaining this idea that it doesn't depend on the man who runs or the man who wills, but it depends depends on God's mercy, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And so if you go back and you read this quote in its Old Testament context in Exodus chapter 9, Pharaoh has enslaved God's people. He's already demonstrated his unwillingness to let the Israelites go. Uh, He's suffered through, at this point, six of the ten plagues already. He's been confronted by the demands of God up to this point, and and Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening his heart over and over again. That's why you get that word hardens in verse 18. Pharaoh has done this repeatedly to the point now where God's like, fine, you want a hard heart? I'll give you a hard heart. And so God joins in and keeps hardening his heart even more. And so uh, Pharaoh has already demonstrated that he's opposed to God and he's opposed to God's purposes and he's opposed to God's people. All right. Now, a really important phrase in the quote here in uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 17 about Pharaoh is, for this purpose I raised you up. That phrase, I raised you up, is really, really important. It doesn't mean I created you. He's not saying, I created you, Pharaoh, so that I could, you know, harden your heart and display my glory for it through you. That's not the the meaning of that phrase. It doesn't even mean what Doug Moo suggests, I don't think. I think Moo misunderstands it when he says, I brought you onto the stage of history. That's not really the point either. Again, Read it in its Old Testament context, and you see very clearly what it's about. And in its Old Testament context, it's that he hasn't destroyed him by now. Like, God could have already destroyed Pharaoh by this point in the Exodus story, and he hasn't. He has allowed him to stand so that he can magnify his glory. That's what the phrase means in its original context. And so it's not... I created you. It's not, I even brought you under the stage of history. It's, I haven't destroyed you. 
I've raised you up, or more literally, I have allowed you to stand. I've propped you up and allowed you to stand. I could have knocked you down. I could have taken you out. And it would have been perfectly just to do so because of your arrogance and your opposition to my people and the way you've treated them. But I haven't done that. I have allowed you to stand. And so Paul really sees this raising Pharaoh up or standing Pharaoh up as equivalent almost to the hardening. He's like, I just allowed you to stand with your hard heart and I hardened you uh, so that uh, I could display my glory through you. And so Paul's summary statement in verse 18. So then God has mercy on whom he desires in the case of Moses uh, and even in the case of Pharaoh by not destroying him when he could have. And he hardens whom he desires. Like God in carrying out his purpose, um, he is carrying forward his plans and his will. It's really motivated by mercy and motivated by what God wants to get done in the world. And it's ultimately expression of God's mercy. And so to summarize Romans 9 thus far, what we see is that God, both in the time of the patriarchs and in the period of the Exodus, God has had to make choices about which people he's going to use and how he's going to use them as he moves his saving purposes forward to fulfill his promises. Whether it's showing mercy to Moses uh, to see his glory, whether it's not destroying Pharaoh, right? Whether it's choosing Jacob as to be the line of promise rather than Esau or Isaac rather than Ishmael. God is carrying his saving purposes forward. And working with individuals to carry his purposes forward is not the same thing as saving those individuals from their sins. We're talking about God using persons to create a nation and to affect redemption in his world. And what we've seen so far is that both during the period of patriarchs and the period of the Exodus, God is having to make choices about which people he's going to use to carry those purposes forward.